She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Now, Stacy Washington. Welcome to the program. It's Stacy Washington here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk, and it's my pleasure to be with you today. We have such a fantastic program for you. I'm really excited about welcoming and Please forgive me. I may be pronouncing your name incorrectly. And if I am, I want to be corrected so that I can have the proper pronunciation. Sink Henderson, writer for HBO's The Newsroom, author of Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. Am I right? Wrong? What am I doing? Sink K. Henderson. Sink K. Okay. Sink K. Thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, no worries. You know, as I told your producer, you know, we're on different sides politically. I'm a liberal Democrat. You're a conservative. But I think there's some common points for um, all of us to agree on and come together and talk about public schools and that kind of thing. Well, and I'm excited about chatting with you about this subject because I'm a former elected school board member. I served as vice president and secretary on our local board of education, and I was elected to that board. I also served an appointment there. I volunteered at every level of the district, and I was really just it, it wasn't a partisan issue for me when, when our kids were in public school. And so when I see the title of your book, Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free, you know, I was I was like, thank you, Demetrius. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So tell us about the book. Why'd you write it? Well, as you said, I'm a writer. Um, I have a, I'm a bit of a bum with my writing habits, to be honest. I, if, I were, if it were up to me, I'd be up to four in the morning. Um, so a friend of mine had a charter school, and I, my parents were educators, and they said, you should come and substitute, you know, it would give you a way to organize your day and that kind of thing. Hmm. So I did it, um, and on my first day, man, this kid called me, as they say in the South, everything but a child of God. Oh. Um, and just came at me like nobody's business. And I kicked him out of class, sent him out with this campus aide. Um, and about 10 minutes later, he came back into my class with a note saying, okay to return to class. There was no detention, no suspension, no call home. And this was kind of commonplace, but the, I taught in some tough schools, I'll just say that. Um, and I thought, you know, as I went on with my, but at the same time, so that was my, my first period. But later in the day, I had a few terrific experiences. So I'm still very committed to education and public education. But I also thought there's a story here about what's really going on and it's really disadvantaged for the suffering underserved schools. Um, and it's kind of a bold thesis, which is that it's not the teachers, it's the kids. Mm. Um, and I sort of unravel really what was going on. I'll just tell you briefly. And as an African-American, I think it's important to say it's not just black inner city kids. It's not just poor Latin Thank kids. You. It's poor Thank white you. kids in the Midwest, too. Mm-hmm. There's a quote from this book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, which I'm sure you've heard of. I've read white. it. It's an amazing book. I cried and cried book. and cried. Oh, my goodness. And I say every black person, liberal, conservative, needs to read that book. I, I agree with you. Because mm. we are so we are so often the ones that are put out front as the ones who are on, you know, cheating welfare and poor and not doing well and that kind of thing. And it really is it's a terrible thing to say, maybe, but it's not a race thing. No, it's Class, not. the loss of jobs, you know, other reasons, it affects everybody. Um, and poverty does please, not respect uh, melanin content. Poverty is poverty is poverty. And, and the ramifications of it are similar no matter what the ethnic background. I'm, I want to ask you, when you said you were subbing at first, what, yeah. what age group was that? I was, every, I was everywhere, but mainly middle school and high school. 
<laughs> so that was the focus. So, and I'll tell you the most. The thing that told me there was a book here is later on at that same school, about a week later, a teacher who had gone to school there as an undergraduate, and as a high school student, said, you know, the school was always tough. Mm. But we used to fight, the students used to fight each other. Now they fight the teacher. And mm. I was like, wow, that's so true. I have cousins who are gang members. They never cursed at their teacher. They never went off on their teacher. And I couldn't figure out why that shift had happened, why kids went from sort of, you know, cursing each other out, fighting each other, to now doing that with the teacher. And I discovered it shocking. I was coming home one day, um, driving in my car. Jay-Z came on the radio, the husband of Beyonce. And the <laughs> interviewer asked him, um, what was the impact of crack cocaine coming into your neighborhood? And he said the most stunning thing, something I never heard, not violence, not more police, not more murders. He said it destroyed the authority figure. And I was like, what is he talking about? So mm-hmm. I started to research it, and I listened to him. And crack cocaine was essentially a child's economy. Because of the mandatory drug sentences that were put down on drug users and drug sellers, they gave the drugs to kids to sell. So you had kids as young as 9 or 10 making money, in the, and it was the only economic game in town because all the jobs had fled the inner city. Mm. And so you had crack cocaine was so powerful, like the opioid crisis now, that it was so powerful. You had the adults who were essentially cracked out, zombies chasing this high. And you had kids selling to them and paying their mama's life bill. And there are economists who said you cannot underestimate the impact of crack cocaine on poor inner-city neighborhoods. It swept through those neighborhoods like the poor horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm. And we look at what's going on with the opioid crisis, and this is why I say it's a universal thing. The opioid crisis in the Midwest with these white, poor, white areas where jobs have fled, um, and they're going through the same thing. Those, those neighborhoods are being destroyed by opioids and joblessness and the hopelessness that comes with that. And so that was the beginning of the book. And then I just went on and learned so much about the impact of fatherlessness, about the fact that, you know, a lot of schools won't suspend kids now. And so the problem I find is on the left, on the right, well, say on the left, the left only wants to deal with the, the, the source. So you can't suspend kids if there's poverty. You can't discipline kids if they come from a broken home. Well, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. But unfortunately, the right sometimes only wants to do the punish, punish, punish got to deal with the source and you got to deal with the symptoms. And the book tries to talk about all of that and just say at the end of the day, if these kids aren't behaving white, black, rich, poor, they're not going to get anywhere in life. And that's just it. Wow. Okay. So you just unpacked that beautifully. And, and I got to, I got to commend you for, cause I, I accept your acknowledgement that we're on different ends of the political spectrum, yep. but the indictment that you just laid down that People on the right tend to be more law and order. It's like, you know, the rule is the rule. You you, yep. you did the crime, you do the time. And then on the left, it tends to be more, well, you have disadvantages in your background. And because of those, you shouldn't reap the repercussions of your actions. Yep. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. Because 100%. as parents, yeah, parents don't. I, there, I've at no time in our parenting journey, my husband and I, have we ever been strictly law and order or strictly, well, you, you know, we made you stay up last night traveling home from vacation. So today you don't have to do anything that we tell you to do. We've never been on those, those, right. those extremes. We've always been in the middle where, yep. you know, your actions and your consequences are going to match what you've done. But there's always some mercy there because we right. know these are people and they're going to improve over time with the proper Direction. So, can you give us any any insight into what 
the what you're advocating it for this it's a it's a new paradigm. Let's let's face it, Sinke. This is not what's happening in a lot of these buildings. That there's a middle ground where kids are punished, but they also know that people care for them. How what does that look like? I'll say a couple of things, and you have to you know. I hope your readers will take a look at the book. It's a real humane look, but also a grown up. You know, I'm an adult now, so I'm kids can't just run around and do what they want. I would say there are a couple of things. There are no immediate sort of short-term solutions. So people banning suspensions, bad idea. You can't mm-hmm. not, got to be able to draw a line and say, mm-hmm. you went too far today, go home and bring your mom, and come back when your mom is with you. But if I would say one very important thing, for boys especially, is more male teachers. The teaching force is 80% in public schools, 80% women, 80% female. That is really difficult for boys black or white, who grow up without fathers in their home. They need those surrogate father figures. And they really need them. There's a chapter in the book that I think one of the best chapters is that you have to, I have this theory about what the real role of fathers in a boy's life. I don't know. I know we're probably running short on time, but I would No, we say, still have a few minutes. You could, Please, okay. please expound. This is, quickly, this is quickly. good. Um, I, I was listening to um, a bo- um, some middle school kids talk, and one boy was like, you know, I'm really worried about seeing my dad this weekend because when he gets mad, he punches me in the chest and knocks the wind out of me, right? Mm. And then another kid was like, yeah, me too. And I was listening. I was smiling because I actually knew that they were bragging about the strength of their dads, right? Oh. And then there was this, there was this black older black guy on Twitter who said, "Fellas, what would what was the what what happened to you when you first uh, you know stepped to your or tested the father the father figure in your life?" And it was a hysterical response. This guy, I was thirteen, I was bigger than my dad, and I said something slick. I woke up on my back with his foot on my chest, or he, <laughs> but he's still my best friend. All these hysterical <laughs> stories about these boys testing their dad, and their dad saying, "Uh, I'm in charge here." Mm-hmm. And what I realize is that boys who grow up without fathers, particularly in neighborhoods where there are not fathers, every boy challenges the adult in their life, right? Mm-hmm. But if you challenge your mom and you're 13 and you realize you're stronger than your mom, bigger than your mom, faster than your mom, in your brain you realize that you can in some way hurt or kill your mom, you think you're an adult. But when you, but when you have a dad and you try to step to him and he's 13 and he pulls you up by the side of your neck, by the side of your collar and says, who are you talking to? It's a whole nother situation for you. You realize, oh, maybe I'm still just a kid and I need to get in line. And so I realize the actual physical presence of a father, just that press, because when you are surged with, I did it. When I had was big and I had hormones, I stepped to my dad and he put me back in my place with a quickness. But he did it with love. When boys grow up without dads in these neighborhoods where there are not dads, they think they're men before they are. Mm. And that physical presence cannot be, and I'm a liberal, I, I know that we're in the age of gender doesn't matter and that sort of thing, but sometimes it does. Mm, thank you for saying that, because I just, I, one of the things that I think is so heartbreaking is that you can afford to have these kind of really nouveau riche ideas about gender when you yep. come from a two-parent household and generally, yep. generationally speaking, you've, yep. you've never even maybe had a divorce in your family, you know, or yep. if there was divorce, there was immediate remarriage. Really quickly, yeah, know, really quickly. Plenty of spouses, yep. And, and, not, and never any economic uh, malaise that, that presented yep. itself as a result of that. When you have yep. that in your, as your, just the history that you can remember for the foreseeable past, you can Look say all, things like gender. Your family's married. Everybody, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're going to marry somebody and and live a very traditional life. You can say things like gender doesn't matter, but for our inner city residents, where you know it, it's a life or death issue for these boys, yep. because it, as you yep. said, when you 
when you first realize, hey, I'm pretty strong. I think I'm stronger than my mom. Well, that's never happened at our house, but I have had our son kind of challenge my authority before. And instead of having to handle it myself, I can just say to him, I think when we talk about this with your father, you're going to have a different understanding. And sometimes just that, that statement. And yes, it doesn't yes. matter whether you're a liberal or conservative. That stuff matters. And so because so one of the, you know, if you don't have it, that's why those male teachers matter, particularly mm-hmm. elementary school, middle school and high school, too. But most they're not enough in elementary. And that male presence, aside from role modeling, aside from the love, that strong presence of someone who you got uh, for a boy, you got to be 20 before you can really test your dad. And by that time, you don't want to test him because you're mature enough to know better. So that's one quick solution. I also think you, we need to bring back reform schools, but not make them little mini jails like they used to be. You should just throw kids out, put them in these reform schools. They really need to be places where kids really can learn and have second chances. There's some great reform schools. Call them alternative schools. Change the name of them. They can't just be places to punish, punish, punish. They have to be places where kids can learn shop, can learn home ec, can learn, can learn to work with their hands, um, and also learn to control their rage, control their emotions, control their, imp- you know, have impulse control. So those are just right off the bat what I would say are two of the recommendations just from my year. Um, and it's so important, as I said, for black kids, for white kids, for poor kids, for fatherless kids. It could not be more important. I really hope that, you know, there's so much division. I'm obviously a liberal, not, you know, um, Democrat, but there's so much that we can, I think, come together on this conversation of education and where it is important in all of uh, kids' development. Well, I, I, I will close out by saying this. First of all, thank you again so much, Sinke Henderson, for coming on the show. Um, you came on knowing that we would not be politically aligned, but on this particular subject, and I believe others, I believe there really are places where we can sit down and have agreements and, and conversation, especially coming from your informed perspective where you've been on the ground there. So you're coming from a place of it, it really doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum the solution comes from. What matters is that we get these solutions out there so that kids can really flourish regardless of where they're coming from, their home life, et cetera. And the school place, the, the school building is kids spend more time at school than they do awake at home. Absolutely. And that is where we can really solve some problems. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. Thank you for this good work that you're doing. Um, and for being willing to have conversations across the aisle. We need it. And you're, you're really, you're out there. It's, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Hope to speak to you again. Have a fantastic evening. Sink Henderson. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You guys take care. All right. Take care. That, that was fantastic. We'll be back with more. If you'd like to call in, it's 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Back with more right after this. Hello, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, on our spiritual heritage tour of Washington, D.C., we go to the Supreme Court. That's one of the places we go on on day one, and we visit the inside chambers. We go to where the justices sit, and it's an amazing place to visit, the Supreme Court of the United States. We don't just look at the outside. We go the inside and see where the justices sit and where oral arguments are heard. So that's just one of the places we visit on one of the days when Washington, D.C. And we also go to Mount Vernon, the home of George and Martha Washington. So we're going in June. We're going in September. June's almost full. September will be filling up soon. 
If you want more information on this Spiritual Heritage Tour, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. When the governor of New York signed the Reproductive Health Act on the 46th anniversary of Roe v.ersus Wade, it became another example of how abortion proponents are doubling down on abortion. Among other things, it establishes a much more permissive standard by which a woman can get a third trimester abortion. Another example of the doubling down on abortion can be seen in the strong comments by the current head of Planned Parenthood. The previous president often argued that the organization did much more than just perform abortion. The current president made it quite clear that the core mission of Planned Parenthood is providing, protecting, and expanding access to abortion and reproductive health care. To see what is happening, let's go back a few decades. When the Supreme Court essentially legalized abortion, older guests on our radio program said they never expected back then that abortion would increase since there would probably be a stigma attached to it. One person said he could never imagine the people would be marching in the streets for abortion rights. Even 20 years later, you still had people like then-candidate Bill Clinton saying that he wanted to make abortion safe, legal, and rare. Often he would even put an emphasis on the word rare when he spoke. About the same time, I remember an abortion debate I did on a university campus against an abortionist. He presented abortion as a difficult decision and perhaps the lesser of two evils necessary only because a woman had a crisis pregnancy. Contrast that with the New York governor who not only signed the bill but also lit up two bridges, a government building and the One World Trade Center spire in pink. When the bill passed the New York legislature, you can watch the YouTube video of the enthusiastic applause. All of this shows how abortion proponents have decided to double down on this issue. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to have our next guest on the program. First time on the show. He is the author of The University We Need, Reforming American Higher Education. It's Professor Warren Treadgold, and he is a professor at St. Louis University, which is in my town. It's called SLU around here by us locals. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So let's talk about this book. I read the the blurbs and the synopsis, and I was like, wow, very timely, very, very important. Why'd you write it? Well, I wrote it because things have gotten pretty bad in most American universities, and I don't just mean through my own university. I mean all of them. It's uh, getting to be to the point where a Christian and a conservative is very much endangered if he's a faculty member and isn't very comfortable if he's a student either on most campuses. So what does that look like? What what does it, because I've seen the stories, you know, I'm aware of it, but like at SLU, because we went to SLU, we actually visited SLU earlier this year. And as we were going around the campus, it was so gorgeous. Your your campus has really, over the time that we've lived in St. Louis for the past 20 years, the campus has not only grown in size, but the actual buildings themselves and the amenities have been renovated. And it's just every building is more beautiful than the next. It's a pretty good size campus, large student body. And you have a number of housing options that we just adored. But we noticed immediately upon entering freshman dorms 
that there are a lot of like, this is your pronoun, put your pronouns on the door. There was a board all about, you know, you don't call, miss pronoun someone, that type of stuff. And we noticed that in the dorms immediately. And we saw some, you know, transgendered students on the campus walking around. And so these are these are all freedom issues, obviously. But there is a, an, an, a kind of culture on SLU's campus where if you don't buy into the misgendering, the, the p- different pronouns and all of that stuff, you're kind of setting yourself up for some disaster. Yes, I'm afraid it's all true. I've seen the campus change. I've been there 20 years as well. And certainly they've upgraded the campus in all sorts of ways. But uh, their idea of their mission is one that really a, an Orthodox Catholic like myself is not comfortable with. And yet that's what they're teaching the students. And that's the way they're evaluating the faculty. Now, uh, it's a big thing for determining our salaries, whether you're contributing to the mission of the university. And the mission of the university is, well, all of this inclusiveness, diversity, which, of course, means that you exclude conservatives, and conservatives aren't part of diversity. What you do is you uh, try to make people feel comfortable if they're transgendered, if they're uh, homosexual, if they're, well, I mean, you know the whole list. Uh, yeah, it's depressing because can can you just talk to us from the professor's standpoint, how much of that is adding to the quality of the education at SLU or detracting from it? Well, essentially, if you believe in all the latest left-wing dogma, you can say it in the classroom. If you don't, you're supposed to keep quiet. Mm. And that's pretty much the case for students, too, who really aren't, are, I think, afraid to, to speak their minds in the classroom if they don't say the things that they're expected to say. Now, of course, you can have the complete illusion of freedom if you believe all the dogma that, that uh, the left-wing administration and, and the left-wing ideology of the campus wants you to, but... Look, I do want to make it very clear that SLU is no different from most campuses and, in fact, is better than some of them. This is a nationwide problem. It's not just SLU. Yeah, and, and I want to echo that. When One of the things that we noticed, in addition to the pronouns and all of that stuff, was that everyone that we encountered on the campus was very positive, very kind. In fact, the one of the primary reasons why it didn't end up being a place that my daughter seriously considered was just simply the number of students there. She was looking for a smaller campus and a smaller student body size. And obviously, we live in the suburbs of St. Louis. And you know what, Professor? She just didn't want to be in the same. She wanted to move away. She was like, I have to at least move out of St. Louis. Come on, Mom. I've grown up here. I've lived here my whole life. So that, those were two strikes against SLU. But we have another... A couple that we know and, and love dearly, their their child is going there and loving it. Just and I know people who've graduated from there. I, d- I don't think SLU is at the tippy top of you know kind of the social justice campuses, and you can still get a great education there. But it is concerning the things you outline in your book. Can you can you share a little bit of what you see as kind of a normative process going across universities across the country that are detracting from the educational value? Well. Of course, there are some things that aren't ideological that are detracting from educational value, too. And those are things like grade inflation. Courses are getting easier and easier. 
And if you look for the easiest courses, and it's not hard to find them on most campuses, there's even a website that helps you find them called RateMyProfessors.com. <laughs> if you want a class in which you don't even have to go to the classes, in which you have almost no reading to do, in which you have almost no writing to do, it's easy to find one. And you can still get good grades for such things. And professors are encouraged, actually, to do that because they get good teaching ratings from their students who say, what a great class, it's so easy. And, of course, it's less, you know, it, it is less work for us, too, if we don't have to grade papers, if we don't have to, to ask students questions, if we just show up and maybe the classroom is half full, but that's not a problem for us either. And this is happening nationwide, no question about it. It's, uh, and it's a problem that has nothing to do with, with ideology. But as for discussing ideas, you can discuss whether you're soft left or hard left, but you can't really discuss the whole spectrum. You certainly can't discuss things from a Christian perspective in most universities, and it's pretty hard to discuss them from a Catholic perspective, even in a Catholic university like SLU. So is it, is, I know it's because some of the professors just don't want to hear it, but it's also the students. Even if a professor is open to hearing the viewpoints that you just outlined that are kind of not mainstream anymore, Christianity, uh, you know, fundamental fundamental Catholicism um, and and the entire right side of the political spectrum. Isn't it the students who are kind of driving these protests and these kind of crazy, like you can't speak on our campus, even if we're not forced to see you, you just can't even walk on our campus, that type of stuff? Well, of course, it is students, but it's not the majority of students. This is a small group of very vocal students. But uh, since the administration favors them, and it is at least afraid to oppose them, the majority of students who I think don't really agree with this are intimidated. And I don't know what the majority of students think. They're very passive. They uh, don't feel like speaking out, that's for sure. But, you know, they could, say, they could say that I don't feel like speaking out. Most of my students have no idea that I'm a conservative. And every now and then I let slip that I'm a Catholic, which is acceptable. They might think I'm a very liberal Catholic. <laughs> you, you let them, you let a few people in on the fact that you're Catholic. <laughs> yes, well, I, mean, I do occasionally refer to it in class. I, I think I can get away with that. But being a conservative, I never say. So... What's the answer? Because I, you know, I believe you when you say it's a small number of people who are very vocal and they're like, they're like the, the worst kid at the airport where the entire airport from one wing to the other can hear this kid screaming and kicking and that kid's making all the other kids look terrible. The, the kids who are just sitting with their little iPads doing nothing or quietly reading a book are getting a bad rap because of this one kid. It's kind of similar with these crazed activist kids on campus, but what's the answer? Well, I have myself been thinking about this for a long time. It, I don't think it does very much good for one person to speak up on these campuses because they're just a tiny minority and, and uh, it's really out of the picture that, that uh, they should help. You notice that the controversy is mostly about outside speakers. It's because there aren't any voices on the campus anymore 
who are conservative and Christian, and when, well, that's not right. Very liberal Christian speakers can speak at a place like St. Louis University. They might have trouble at some other places. The, so I don't, I don't really know. I've suggested in my book that what we need is a new university, but we don't need it probably for people like your daughter who want a smaller college. There are several small colleges that are pretty good and are conservative and are Christian. It's, the big problem is that the flagship universities, the elitist universities, the, uh, the big state universities and the Ivy League and others like them are all uniformly left-wing and anti-Christian. And if we could just have one university that was in that class that was explicitly conservative and Christian, or I've suggested Christian and Orthodox Jewish, it would be an enormous help to the whole academic landscape nationwide. And that's one of the things I propose in my book. So do you see any opportunity for students themselves? Because I, I believe the bulk of the students on campus are either kind of apolitical because they find college to be so overwhelming. They're not taking the easier classes. They're really working hard and they just want to get their degree. And so during their college years, they're not they're not as political. They just don't feel the need to be so. And then there's also kids there who are clearly right-leaning. They may not be full-blown Stacy on the right types, but they're definitely conservative, you know, politically, maybe even socially. Is it time for them to band together and have some protests and kind of show the other people what it looks like, or is that an exercise in futility? I don't think it would work. There aren't enough of them. There isn't enough sympathy for them among the student body is at large, and the administration is against them. I just don't see... They'd have to have some very specific cause, and I can imagine if they chose it very carefully, it might do a little bit of good, but I wouldn't do very much good. It wouldn't change the overwhelming facts that administrations are very left-wing and very anti-Christian, faculties are by and large left-wing and anti-Christian, and the people who aren't as left-wing and aren't as anti-Christian are passive and have learned that you just get in trouble if you speak. Hmm. So I do, I do agree with that. If you go to uh, campus reform, they have a website where they, they just catalog this and it's a constant all the time type of a situation. Um, so what's the answer for parents? Cause I, I also think there's some room for people who are alumni who are conservative to say, you know what, I'm not going to give you any more money. Would that impact it at all? Oh, I think it should happen. And one of the reasons why I think a new conservative university could succeed is it would give people a place to give their money, whereas now they either don't give money to higher education at all or they're giving money to mostly institutions that they that are selling a message that they absolutely don't approve of. And I'm sorry that so many of them still do. Of course, the really big donors get the idea that what they want their uh, names to be on is a building at Harvard or something like that, and they don't really care what's taught inside it, it seems, or they haven't thought about it. That's probably more uh, 
what they what really is what's on their mind. They they just don't think about that. And, and slowly they're learning that these are universities that really regard America as a terribly oppressive place. And part of the reason that they're finding this out is that this now has some traction in the National Democratic Party, that America is an oppressive place, you know, we're all racist, we're all homophobes, uh, <laughs> we're all transgender-phobes, we're, uh, we're all really bad people, and uh, that's what the universities have been teaching for a long time, and finally it's beginning to penetrate on the national political scene, too. Okay, I, so I have to ask about this new conservative university, you're not talking about starting one of those in St. Louis. You mean a, a nationwide kind of a university where there would be campuses across the country and that would be a viable option for parents to send their kids to, a place where conservative professors could work and that type of thing? How, what does this well, look like? Well, if you really want to find a conservative college, there are several of them. There are places like Berea College and Christendom College and Grove City College and Hillsdale College. Those places exist, and... They are places where you can send your your children if you don't want them to get the full uh, liberal propaganda machine. You won't find them there. The place that I propose would be a single campus because the trouble with these multiple campuses, and I've been in a number of universities that have multiple campuses, they just have no focus and they have no and they have no impact. The Either there's one campus that's the real campus and the other ones really are fake campuses with them too small and don't make any difference or they spread themselves too thin. The proposal that I make, and I make a very specific proposal, but it's one that certainly could be modified. Anyone who has the money to do it can found such a university and doesn't have to listen to me if he doesn't want to. I suggested one in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., since it would be near the center of political power and in a position to have real national influence, and that could, that could attract conservative students and professors from all over the country. But I'd hope it would have national impact. It wouldn't just be a local university that would just draw from people from around Washington, because, of course, a whole lot of students, including me when I was that age, are like your daughter, and they'd rather live away from home and and be independent. Mm. Well, I'm hoping that um, what we need is people who have those big dollars to take this idea on and band together and start something like this because we need more Hillsdales. We need more, we, not less. I mean, we don't have them spread out around the country. We need a conservative university in the Midwest, a uh, really strong one besides Wheaton. So um, thank you so much. Professor Warren Treadgold, Professor at St. Louis University, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars Fellowship, Wilbur Foundation Fellowship, an amazing career. Uh, thank you, sir, for coming on today. We'll be right back. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. A District of Columbia restaurant is $7,000 poorer because a mentally ill man dressed as a woman demanded use of a restroom designated for women. Clyde Clymer was inside the ladies' room when an employee asked for identification. The employee then asked Clymer to leave the establishment. He reported the incident to the D.C. Attorney General's office as a violation of the district's Human Rights Act. But they weren't done. The $7,000 fine is only one aspect of the punishment. 
the restaurant is now required to post signage telling everyone that they are free to use the restroom of their gender identity or expression. The transgendered man also received an undisclosed settlement amount for his troubles. The employee who asked for ID was terminated. So you see, this isn't about tolerance or love or anything resembling liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. It's about making everyone bow down to the left's ideological hobby horse. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. The Holy Spirit speaks to everybody. The problem is most folks don't listen. Lonnie Poindexter. If they do listen, they don't take it to heart or they get fearful or whatever. But when you listen and act upon it, wonderful things happen. And because a man of God heard the voice of God and acted upon it, it blesses me today and you as well for listening in. Lion Chasers. Weekday mornings at 10 Central on Urban Family Talk. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. We're two years into the Trump administration, so we asked voters how they think things are going in our Fox News poll. 41% rate the economy positively. That's an improvement from 33% who felt that way when President Trump first took office. He continues to get his best marks on the economy. 49% approve. Yet, many see trouble ahead. The number who think the economy will be stronger a year from now dropped 18 points since Trump took office. The number happy with the direction of the country? Down also, by 7. By a 16-point margin, more think the country is worse off today than it was a year ago. Then there's this. During the government shutdown, we found over half of voters couldn't miss more than two paychecks before having trouble paying bills. And, as has been the case for almost two years, a majority disapproves of Trump's job performance. That's how voters feel things are going. In the State of the Union Tuesday, we'll find out what the president thinks. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your Polpourri. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Uh, it has been often on this show that we have heard audio clips from Charles Krauthammer when he would be contributing on Fox News and other times when he would uh, occasionally do interviews on other outlets. I would have audio of him speaking and we would play it on this program. And to me, he was one of the greatest thinkers of our time and he has contributed in so many ways to the public discussion and understanding of not just politics, but living life as a human being, as an American, and as uh, trying to strive to be a person of, of high, a high level of integrity. I didn't always agree with Charles Krauthammer, but I always found him to be astute and really at the very tip of the spear when it came to leading thought and encouraging debate and discussion on a very intelligent level getting away from the emotionality of things and really getting down to brass tacks about the issue itself, regardless of ideology or viewpoint 
or where you're coming from specifically in your own personal, uh, you know, where, where your, your socioeconomics, et cetera. And so it was really exciting for me when I saw earlier this week that we had our next guest booked into the show to talk about the final work for Charles Krauthammer. Um, warning, I've listened to many of Charles Krauthammer's calling, columns on uh, audio. He, if you go to the library, you can find audiobooks that are compilations of his columns. And for someone who wrote for as many decades as he did, the topics spanned every area of life, not just politics. Some of the best columns I've heard of his read in his own voice have been about things that have nothing to do with politics, but are so enlightening and so instructive in living well. And so it's with great pleasure that I welcome our next guest. We are going to be speaking to his son, Daniel Krauthammer. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Stacey. I really appreciate being here. So let's talk about this. It's, it's a book that is a compilation of his works, his writing, and it's called The Point of It All, A Lifetime of Great Loves and Endeavors. And you're the editor of this work. So how did this come about? Yeah. So as you said, it's a compilation of columns, essays, speeches, and quite a few uh, never before published uh, entries. And this was something that my father was working on for quite some time before his health crisis struck last year. And uh, most of what's in the book now was all put together by him, chosen by him, uh, placed by him there. And of course, it's all written by him in the book. Uh, And when he was ill last year, I was by his side in the hospital the whole time and helped him continue to work on it bit by bit. And uh, that's when I became involved and got to know where he was going, understood his thoughts and his wishes for the book. And when he received uh, the final news and knew that he wouldn't be able to finish the book himself, he entrusted it to me to finish for him. And so all these past months, that's been the number one priority in my life to get this done, uh, to get this book done well and up to the incredibly high standards that he set. And incredibly high standards is very apt representation of what we were able to, really, it was like a treat getting to read his columns, getting to hear his thoughts on different issues, spanning all topics, not just politics. And so the title is The Point of It All. Can you talk about why he chose that to be the title of the book? Yeah, so as you could guess, it's not exactly a narrow topic when you uh, call it the point of it all. And uh, that title, he actually hadn't chosen the title uh, before he passed. So that title was actually my mother's idea. And she was actually the one who thought up the title for his last book as well. So she has a, a very good track record on this. But as soon as she said it, uh, I knew she knew, uh, all of the publishers, the whole editing team knew that uh, this was the right way to go. And as I explain in the introduction, which I wrote to the book, I think it does uh, sum up so well what the book is about. Uh, and it's difficult because, as you said, he wrote on so many different topics. And this book is very representative of his work. It spans all the way from what you'd expect in politics, foreign and domestic, big questions of world history, the nature of democracy, political philosophy and views on limited government, and then all the way across to uh, the fun passions he had in life of baseball, movies, chess, space exploration, and most especially in this book and and uniquely to his personal life, to what family meant to him, his friendships, relationships, his career, and what gave purpose to his life. And really, I think his philosophy binds all these things together in a way that's very unique for something that has such a breadth. And Really, I think uh, the point of it all for him, when he viewed the point of it for all of us, was to pursue our own purpose, our own meaning, chart our own destinies in life. And that's really the 
the blessing we have living in a society, in the country, in the democracy we do, that we have that freedom of choice. But it also brings with it a responsibility to uphold that successful politics that we have to keep democracy uh, and freedom and liberty alive so that we can maintain that choice to really find our own meaning. And uh, that seemingly paradoxical combination is really the whole point of my father's life, was to find his own personal things that meant something just to him, but also professionally to do what he could uh, to advance our politics and maintain that system and that liberty for all of us. So let's talk a little bit about Charles Krauthammer personally, because you're his son and you can offer some insight to us that we maybe haven't been able to get watching him over the decades on Fox News and, and other news outlets. And he's been, you know, commenting on so many different issues. You mentioned um, the, the range of subject matter. And he was clearly he, it wasn't that he just thought deeply about politics or just concerned himself only with political matters to write about or to think about or to discuss but that he really was interested in the way that people lived. And he had a deep admiration and fascination with the American life and how varied it could be. Can you talk to us a little bit about his thinking there and and what he delves into in the book in in that arena? Yeah, sure. I think two things uh, strike me in in thinking about your question, and uh, particularly in the idea of his appreciation of America and the American people. There's uh, quite a few pieces in the book that that really express that in a beautiful way. I think there's maybe my favorite piece in the book. Uh, it's called "Constitutions, Conservatism, and the Genius of the Founders." It really gets into his views on American politics, limited government, and and American exceptionalism. And towards the end, he gets to a, a passage that brings a smile to my face every time, where he he talks about his his something approaching even faith in a sense of providence in American history, and as he puts it, uh, that there's something about American history, about the bedrock decency of the American people that always finds its way, redeems itself, and inspires all of us. And it's something that was so true to his core, combined his personal beliefs, his political beliefs, and sometimes when I'm doubtful and worried and, and, uh, and feeling gloomy about our future, it actually gives me hope and brings a smile to my face. And I think on a, on a personal level, uh, that that sense of love for America and um, Americans also was expressed in, in a lot of the more fun and personal uh, pieces in the book. That he and this is something I don't think viewers would have seen as much on TV. That really he really had kind of a childlike love of uh, just kind of uh, silly, fun American things. Uh, you know, going to the ball games. He took me ever since I was a kid, and you, you know he would start chewing his gum immediately. He'd load up on hot dogs, and he was just happy as a camper. Or when he was a kid growing up in the summers in Long Beach, New York, he just lived on the boardwalk. And uh, he loved whenever we'd go on road trips, stopping in small towns and just kind of uh, soaking up um, just really what was out there and not, uh, not looking for the finer things in life, so to speak, but, but really enjoying the simple things in life. And I think that all comes out very fully across the book. So that's the part that to me is the most fun because uh, so most people who do political commentary, not just on Fox, but all over the place are interesting in their personal lives beyond what you see of them. You know, that those three minute hits or six minutes on on, you know, whatever station they're on. So that's not in and of itself quite as unique as, you know, most people are interesting and have something that they're that they're passionate about. 
But when you talk about, you know, kind of a childlike enjoyment of certain uh, exploits or admiration for the American people, those two things are a bit more, those are specific, those are unique. And they're also, they take a little bit of stretching to picture Charles Krauthammer, who is a very serious person, (laughs) you know, to to kind of picture him in that way. But we know it's the truth because we're we're sitting here speaking to his son, you know, so we're getting insider views. Um, Do you have any other anecdotal tales about, uh, you know, the the more fun side of Charles Krauthammer? Um, Well, I I did mention chewing gum briefly, but I would say I I don't (laughs) think I ever saw him smile more than if you put him in front of a giant gumball machine. That was kind of a... His favorite thing, but uh, maybe another thing that strikes me is movies. He was a huge movie buff, and that's a, I am too, actually, and that's something we always bonded over since I was a little kid. And uh, we'd go out to movies all the time. And one of our our favorite traditions is actually on Christmas Day we would have a father son movie day, and he would uh, pick out a whole bunch of movies, ten, twelve. Uh, and I was little, so he was kind of teaching me the the canon of the great movies, and he'd pick out old ones and the kind of classics you're supposed to know. And we would just lock ourselves in the TV room and watch movies morning till night. Oh, and uh, so I think he he also memorized the lines from all his favorite movies, and that's something he lived off of as well. So I think that kind of vicarious uh, loving enjoyment and immersion is something that that really was part of him. Wow. I So I'm sitting here a little in shock because we are, we're those people too, where we have movie marathons and we um, oh, enjoy yeah. doing that yeah. with our kids. And we do, one of our favorite things is to, you, you've already memorized some of the lines from your favorite movies. And then when it's appropriate, when it totally works out, instead of replying to someone as you would be expected to, you reply with that movie line. And it really keeps us yeah. laughing and keeps things lighthearted at our house. So I, I definitely understand that passion. It's a very American thing to like to watch movies and to incorporate, yeah. you know, those those scripts into your everyday life. Um, so turning to yeah. the... And he the, not only did it in, in conversation, he actually slipped them into columns all the time over the years. And there's quite a few in the book, actually, if you look. There's some lines from Casablanca and Lawrence of Arabia and some of his other favorites. So <laughs> I'm going to be looking for those. For. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. So, uh, so if if you had to characterize the book, because I'm I I have a lot of people on, I have a lot of guests come on the show, and they they all have books. Like everybody's written a book, yeah. and I'm I'm personally very excited about this, getting this, and kind of tucking into it when I'm off for Christmas because I was able to interview the son of the late Justice Antonin Scalia about the compilation of speeches that he'd he'd put together for his father. And I tell you what, it's it is fascinating to read, first of all, the different groups that he spoke to. And second of all, the wide range of subjects that he covered. And so I've been reading some of those speeches like I take a few at a time instead of trying to read through the whole book. I just flip through and pick one and read it. And I've learned so much, not really specifically about him, but about the subject matter. And so if you had to characterize the book for someone who's maybe thinking, okay, Stacey's got a, an author on, it's, you know, another book and she's all excited, but you know, what, what will be meaningful for me in this book? What would you say to that listener? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned uh, Justice Scalia's book. I recently read it as well. And I agree. It's a fascinating book covering a similarly large range of topics and really speaks to people who have interest in different areas. And I think as well with with my father's book, The Point of It All, there's so much in it that the the thing I would most want people to know is I really do think there's something that will be meaningful for literally everyone. Um, That there's, obviously, if you're interested in politics, there's a lot in there for that. But I have so many friends who have 
uh, over the years spoken to me about how much they love reading my dad's stuff on baseball or on dogs or just about society in general and how we interact with each other. And I think more than anything in this book, one of the, the strengths that I made a very conscious decision to to put in here, and it's, it's a very rare thing to see in my father's writing because he didn't do it much, but is how he talked about himself and his own life, his own life's journey, his career, and how he approached life and his philosophy on it. And that's something that obviously as his son has influenced me completely my whole life and in a very total way. But especially these last months, I've come to realize how much that's touched other people and the number of people, friends, acquaintances, but more than anything, his viewers and readers and people who never met him in person have come to me and told me how touched they were or how reading his words and, and reading about his life helped them get through a difficult part of their life, inspired them, gave them guidance. I think really for anyone who's interested in thinking deeply about ideas and about life and kind of feeling an awe and reverence and uh, and gratefulness for what life is. Um, there's just a lot in this book that I think will be uh, solace for the soul and and just really enriching. And that's what I hope more than anything uh, that people will get from this book. Mm, perfect, perfect summation. Thank you. I So I, I want to first of all say thanks for the work. It, it had to have been kind of cathartic doing this after his passing. And I was... So just, I, it was such a devastating announcement to hear that he would not be able to recover and to have this book to kind of, you know, work through and um, enjoy afterwards is a real treat. And I'm so appreciative that you were able to do it and that you're bringing us this opportunity to experience more of what was Charles Krauthammer and, and the contribution that he made to us all as Americans and as a society of people who I hope still think deeply about ideas. Um, thank you for your time today on the show and for editing the book and bringing it to us. And I encourage listeners to uh, follow the link. I'm going to put the link in the live streams and you can get uh, get it in two-day shipping on Amazon. So easy. It'll be at your doorstep like post haste and then you can start tucking into it. That's yeah. my plan. And then I'm going to leave it out because I think at least one of my kids will be interested in reading some of the speeches. I'm going to dog the pages <laughs> and see what I can do. Um, but th thank you, Daniel, for your time today and for uh, editing this book. No, thank you, Stacey. I really appreciate it. All right. That is this hour of the program. If you're leaving us now, God bless you and uh, have a great day from the heartland. If you're sticking around, it's One News Now, news and information. <laughs> What's up next for you? Stay there.